This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show number 467. I think, though, there's another kind of flip-flopping, uh, which is called learning, which means I changed my mind because I'm in scientist mode and I came across a better argument or more rigorous evidence uh, where if you don't flip-flop, you're being a stubborn idiot, right? And I think we need to praise people who do that kind of rethinking. It's It's sometimes hard to tell the difference between them, but my simple place to start is to say, I expect people to hold pretty firm on their core values, but to be pretty flexible on their plans. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? It's Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co-host, Mr. David, the cheerleader green. What's up, man? How you doing? It's a good day. I closed on a $15 million property today in your old hometown or home state, Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. Did you go see my mom and my yep. dad there? I plan on it, doing a little bit of long distance real estate investing and getting into a new uh, triple net space. What'd you buy? Uh, I bought a retail center, 16 units. That's all triple net. It's my first time getting out of a residential and into the triple net space. And I bought it all myself. I typically don't do that many partners. So let's hope that the world doesn't come to an end or the that area doesn't burn to the ground and uh, everything should be good. What I like about what you did is like, like the thing that has always worried me about triple net lease, and there's ways around this. I don't want to say you shouldn't do it because of this, but the thing that's always worried me is like, if you have like a one tenant, like you, you're renting to like a, you know, whatever mm-hmm. a Starbucks and then Starbucks is like, you know what, we're going to close up shop here. Yes. They have leases and all that. But if, if you couldn't get re-rented for a year or two, like that would just like, as an average person who doesn't have a lot of money, like me, that would have been terrible for like all my life. I always thought it was horrible. But now today I'm like, huh, like I could do that. But the, what's even more impressive, what you did is you bought like a 16 unit retail center, triple net. So it's just like having a multifamily versus single family. If somebody leaves, you can afford to do it just fine. So good job, man. Yeah. And you got to make sure you're in a good area. That was a big piece of it. It's a good area. All the tenants were making payments all the way through COVID. In fact, several of them renewed their lease during the COVID period. So I did everything I could to try to make sure it's a good buy. And I think in the next couple of months, I'll be making some videos that sort of highlight how I did the deal, why I did the deal, what the tax advantages of are the deal. And if anybody has any questions about it, they can hit me up on Bigger Pockets through the email system or on Instagram and I'll connect them with my CPA and maybe they can do something similar. Very cool, man. Well, appreciate it. Uh, Cool stuff. Well, with that said, let's get on to today's quick tip. Today's guest on the show is named Adam Grant. He wrote, uh, he's written a lot of good books, but today we're specifically talking about one of his books and it is called Think Again. So the quick tip is pick up a copy of Think Again. It's really good. I think it's super, in, I mean, super good, but it's really good for especially real estate investors in a changing economy and a changing world where we don't know what next year looks like. And so it's all about broadening your mind to think bigger, to mm-hmm. think differently, to cha- challenge your assumptions and more. So that's today's quick tip is pick up a copy of it wherever books are sold. Did you know that short and medium term rentals often offer double the cash flow compared to long term rentals? Well, it's true. And rental retirement just made investing in them easier than before. 
Now you can buy fully turnkey short and medium term rentals that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed. Maximize your cash flow, appreciation and equity while the rental retirement team takes care of all of it for you. Plus, their creative financing options like interest rate buy downs can get you a rate in the low fives. And their investor loans let you buy multiple properties with as little as 5% down, not 20%. 5% down. But why buy with Rent to Retirement? They're investors just like you and me and rock one of the highest reputations across bigger pockets with more five star reviews than any other company on our site. And I think that's a pretty big deal. To learn more, visit rentoretirement.com. That's rentoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing in some of the best cash flow markets today. Buy low, sell high. Buy low, sell high. It's a simple concept, right? But not necessarily an easy concept. Right now, high interest rates have crushed the real estate market. Prices are falling and properties are available at a discount, which means Fundrise believes that now is the time to expand the Fundrise flagship fund's billion-dollar real estate portfolio. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in minutes by visiting fundrise.com pockets. Fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. Their light doc and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. And with that said, let's get on with today's show. So today's guest, as I mentioned, is Adam Grant. Adam is a best-selling author of books like Originals, which is a huge book, New York Times bestseller, another book called Give and Take, uh, and then Think Again. So that's what we're talking about today, all about this idea of thinking differently. So without further ado, I think we'll jump into the interview with Adam Grant. All right, Adam Grant, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. It's an honor to have you here. The honor is all mine. Thanks for having me. This is a fun show because I feel like I want to start with just those who aren't watching this on YouTube, maybe you can't see this, but I feel like uh, my two guests here are like twin brothers. And I'm like the guy who took your guys' hair and just put it on the bottom of my face. So this is a, <laughs> this is an honor for that reason as well. So let's get into your story a little bit. Uh, first of all, before we get into the book and the stuff you've written and the concepts and all that stuff, uh, you as a person, what do you do? I mean, you're, you're an organizational psychologist. Am I saying that correctly? Guilty as charged. What does an organizational psychologist do? Okay, I can't cure your OCD. Okay, probably not going to be helpful with organizing your closet either. Mm. Uh, What I do is I study how to make work not suck. So I take all the principles of psychology and I try to figure out how to make jobs more meaningful and motivating, how to make teams more creative and cultures more collaborative. 
how did that become like your interest? You know, how did that become the fire in your belly? You're like, I'm going to go follow that instead of like being a rock star. Cause you, I, I could see you being a, you know, a nineties rock star or something like that. I could, I could have seen that, but it didn't go that <laughs> just a Billy Corgan so. reference. Did you just Billy Corgan him? <laughs> no, I just, I, I, I we could have a, a band here. So why, why organizational psychology? Uh, I have no rhythm as, uh, no. as I found out when, <laughs> when I was in high school and college, I was a diver. And, you know, you're, you're supposed to have a good rhythm on a springboard. And one day my coach brought a metronome to practice and after two years gave up. He said, you're humanly <laughs> incapable of rhythm. You move like Frankenstein. Like, this, is, this is not going to work. Uh, and one of the interesting <laughs> things about diving for me was I was afraid of heights. And the whole sport for me was, was psychology around motivating myself to try crazy flips and twists and overcome my fears. And that kind of got me hooked on psychology. And I had no idea what I wanted to do with it until partway through college, I signed up for an organizational psych class. And the professor had basically made it his job to study all the jobs he thought were, were, were interesting. And you know, I, it suddenly clicked for me. I don't have to pick one job. I can think of all the worlds that I wish I got to work in, and I'm going to go and study those for a living. So, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, I've gotten to study creativity at Pixar, uh, trust building with astronauts who are getting ready to go on the, st the space station, um, collaboration with NBA teams. And I feel like I have the coolest job on earth because I got to design it. That's cool. And now you get to write about it and we get to live vicariously through you. So everyone wins here. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> I also have in my notes here that it says from magician to junior Olympian springboard diver. Adam has made a big splash in academia. It's a, it's a great written thing for my producer here. But magician, what's what's the backstory of that? Long retired, but in, <laughs> oh, in middle school, I was babysitting for some kids down the street and they were, they never sat still. One day I noticed that they got into magic tricks and they actually sat for about an hour. So I went home, I learned some tricks and I found that I really enjoyed performing and the element of surprise was so much fun for me to say, okay, can I set up your expectation that one thing is going to happen and then something else will happen? And it was a great, it was actually a great stage for me to practice on as an introvert who was shy, learning to get comfortable in the spotlight. And I guess it, it foreshadowed my future career as a teacher and TED speaker. I remember the day, this is totally unrelated to anything we should be talking about today, but I remember I made a, when I was like in fourth grade, I made like this cardboard table for my family and I did a big magic show and I just had like little like holes in the table that I could like, I'd roll a ball across the table, it would disappear. I thought I was going to be a magician and then... I don't know. My parents told me I was stupid and they left. And it was <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. It wasn't that bad. But let's. Well, let's... I, I think you made a good choice, Brandon. A good <laughs> choice. You. There's that family guy line that magicians are at the very bottom of the hierarchy of entertainers, only above mimes. <laughs> uh, I did do I did do some miming and some balloon, balloon animals also at a nursing home when I was uh, in high school. So it's all it's all good. Let's let's go back to you because this is getting weird. Um, think again. What is that? What, where did that concept come from? Where did this whole, the entire book idea come from? I mean, you've written some other really good books, originals, give and take, and, and like 4 million other books and topics and papers. But think again, what's the background on that? There's, so, I mean, there's so many different things that happened that, that got me interested in this topic. But I guess in a lot of places, I have made bad decisions where I failed to rethink my assumptions and my opinions. Um, and, you know, I, I think an early one was, when I got to college, I helped to co-found what has been called Harvard's first online social network. This was in 1999. Uh, some of my friends and I connected more than an eighth of the entering freshman class online. And then we showed up in Cambridge and we said, all right, we're, we're all now living in the same town. We don't need the online social network. And we walked away. <laughs> and five years later, Mark Zuckerberg starts Facebook in the house next door. 
And it never even occurred to me, right, that this was more than a hobby, that it could be a business, that it might be interesting to people who, you know, who were adults as opposed to college kids. And, you know, that was a big failure of rethinking. And then about a decade later, I was teaching my first class at Wharton, and one of my students pitched me on investing in his eyewear startup. And he said, I was going to, he said, I'm going to sell glasses on the internet. I was like, that is never going to work. And today, <laughs> Warby Parker is a unicorn. And oh. I was very late to that party. Okay. So this idea of rethinking, we're, we're basically talking about you know, challenging our like fundamental beliefs that we start with. In fact, I took a quote out of the book here. It says, this book is an invitation to let go of knowledge and opinions that are no longer serving you well and to anchor your sense of self in flexibility rather than consistency. If you can master the art of rethinking, I believe you'll be better positioned for success at work and happiness in life. Uh, and I thought that was such a good like summary of what the entire book is. So people don't have to read the book anymore. So we're good. Let's just close up shop <laughs> now and get out of here. No. Um, so I want to start by, by well, I guess we've already started. I want to continue by talking about firefighters for a minute here. Uh, the story that you begin the book with is, is about some firefighters. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a classic um, tragic story about the Mangulch fire where there's this, this fire that gets out of control and these elite wildland firefighters, they're called smoke jumpers, literally parachute in to try to put it out. And very quickly, they discover that this is a race for their lives. Um, the fire is, is basically moving very quickly up, uphill. And if they don't start running immediately, they're not going to survive. Um, and the, a couple of things happen that I think are, are just devastating during that, that race for their lives. The first one is that the foreman, this guy Wagner Dodge, uh, all of a sudden stops and he bends over in the grass. And the other firefighters look at him like he is insane. What is he doing? We're, we're running for our lives. And he actually takes a matchbook out of his pocket and starts to light a match. Like, what, 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 you're running from a fire. Why are you starting a fire? Nobody can figure it out. Everybody ignores him. It turns out that he's improvised. He has completely rethought what a fire is in that situation. That instead of saying a fire is a source of danger, he rethinks it as a, maybe a source of safety. Um, and he builds himself what's called an escape fire by burning all the grass on the ground. There's nothing for the major wildfire to burn over. And he essentially lays down um, in the charred ashes and survives for the next 15 minutes, letting the fire burn right over him. So that's the first moment of rethinking, which is incredible. Um, and if you stop there, right, rethinking is not something I have the genius to do, uh, to improvise in that moment and figure out that, that you could, you know, you could save your life by lighting a fire as an escape from the bigger fire. Like that's, that's just insane, right? Then there's another failure of rethinking, which is uh, he, they, they get a call to drop their tools. He gives an order to drop their tools. And most of the firefighters don't. They run carrying 20-pound axes and packs. And later, investigators calculate that dropping their tools could have made the difference between life and death. And it's such a, for me, it's, it's such a poignant metaphor because their assumption during their training and their experience is that they use their tools to do their job, which is to fight fires, and also sometimes to save their lives. And now to rethink your tools as the thing that might kill you, really hard to do. And I think that, you know, in that story is obviously a failure of people to rethink their basic assumptions, but it's also a failure of the foreman to get his team to rethink their assumptions, to get them to, you know, survive in the escape fire or to drop their tools. Both of those failures happen. And ultimately, most of the firefighters die. Um, only the foreman and two who barely managed to outrun the fire make it out alive. 
that is a really good metaphor for for yeah, just life in general. Uh, you know, we cling to these things so often, like this is how it's done, or this is how it always has been done. You know, like you know, we do a lot of real estate investing, so we buy a lot of properties, and, and real estate's been pretty standard. I, I don't know you can say like it hasn't changed a whole lot in the last few hundred years, but the last decade it's changed dramatically. And, and a lot of things are going differently now. So th- that's why, like, I thought this was so important to bring up is let, let's rethink how this stuff is done. So I want to get into a little bit about the preacher, prosecutor, politician. And then there's one other one in there uh, that we can talk about that I'll let you kind of introduce those concepts. So how does that look? Yeah. So my colleague, Phil Tetlock, uh, discovered that there are these three mindsets that a lot of us get stuck in that can prevent us from thinking again. Uh, preacher mode is basically I've found the truth and I'm trying to spread it. Uh, prosecutor mode is I'm trying to win an argument and prove my case. And if we just stop there, if you're preaching and prosecuting, you're not going to rethink what you believe because you're right and other people are wrong. They're the ones who need to change their minds. And then politician mode is a little bit different. It's about trying to win the approval of an audience by campaigning and lobbying. And the problem with that one is you might tell people what they want to hear, but odds are you're not really changing what you think deep down or doing much to convince them to rethink what they believe. Yeah. And I just, I, I think what's so interesting about this to me is I have never been a preacher. I didn't go to law school. I can't stand politics. And yet I catch myself slipping into these modes. My, my biggest vice, as you know, is, is prosecutor mode. Uh, I just, I, I feel like it's when somebody is, is wrong, uh, I feel like it's my moral responsibility to correct them. And you know, that just, it doesn't win anyone over. It, it actually leads me to lose, but it's really hard for me to avoid. Is that where the logic bully, the, the story of the logic <laughs> bully comes in? Yeah. I, I Thank you for reminding me. I had a former student who accused me be, of being a logic bully. And at first I thought it was a compliment. I'm like, yeah, that's my job as a social scientist to, <laughs> <laughs> to bombard you with facts and reasons and data until you change your mind to the correct opinion. And you know, it was not a compliment, right? I was, I wasn't actually listening to her and learning from her and being open-minded. And I also wasn't giving her a chance to take ownership of some of the ideas I was presenting and, and really think about, well, why might this be true for me or relevant to me? And uh, yeah, lo- logic bully is the worst version of my, my prosecutor mindset. I think every husband out there has also experienced this idea. <laughs> like, like I'll, I'll like tell my wife, just like, this is why, this is why, this is why, let me give you all the data and the reasons why I'm right. And in, for some weird reason, it never convinces her. Like, I don't know. So <sighs> strange how that happens to all of us. Uh, I have a, I, I have a back and forth now that's, that's pretty typical, especially since Think Again came out where I'll, I'll launch into an argument and my wife will say, logic fully. Yep. I'm like, oh, oh, I'm doing it again. I didn't even know I was doing it. I just, I was so into the ideas and the argument that it never occurred to me that not everyone is excited to have a three and a half hour debate about nothing. <laughs> so what's the alternative? Preacher, prosecutor, politician, what's the fourth? Well, I think a good alternative is to think like a scientist. And when I say that, I don't mean you should go out and buy a telescope or a microscope. Uh, you don't even have to have a white lab coat, although I, I do think we could use a few more Bill Nyes in the world. Mm. But When I say think like a scientist, I mean, value humility over pride and curiosity over conviction. Don't let your ideas become your identity. 
Uh, thinking like a scientist means that when you have an opinion, it's just a hunch. It's a hypothesis waiting to be tested. And you want to do the experiment or the A-B test to figure out whether you're right or not. And that means you actually have to look for reasons why you might be wrong, not just the reasons why you must be right. That you have to listen to ideas that make you think hard, not just the ones that make you feel good. And you have to surround yourself with people who challenge your thought process, not just the ones who agree with your conclusions. Well, David, I don't want to hog the mic the whole time. I think you want to jump in and... and, and cover before I move on to sort of ask Adam, like, how do you see some of these philosophies and mindsets applying to entrepreneurs in particular? Okay, so let's let's start with thinking like a scientist. There's an amazing experiment that was done with Italian entrepreneurs. Uh, They're all pre revenue. And they take a three to four month crash course in how to start and run a business. What they don't know is that half of them have been randomly assigned to a control group. And half of them have been randomly assigned to learn to think like scientists. They don't get any different information. They're just told, you know, put on the, the goggles of scientists and see the world that way. So your, your company strategy, just a theory. When you talk to customers, great way to develop specific hypotheses. And then when you launch your product or your service, that's just an experiment to test your hypotheses. Over the next year, the entrepreneurs who are randomly assigned to think like scientists, on average, bring in more than 40 times the revenue of the control yeah. group. Staggering effect. When I read that, I thought it was a misprint in your book. Like I literally, it was like $300 and then $12,000. And I went back and reread it and then reread it again. And I'm like, is he meaning like 300 a month and then 12,000 a year? Like it's shocking. It was, I mean, it's one of the biggest effects I've ever seen. And the major reason why thinking like a scientist was powerful is the entrepreneurs were more than twice as likely to pivot. That in the control group, right? When When your product or service launch bombs, you fall into this trap that's called escalation of commitment to a losing course of action, where you, you double down on your failing strategy. You're like, I got to prove to myself and everybody else that this was a good choice. When you think like a scientist, you look at the results and you say, hmm, maybe I should rethink my strategy. Maybe my theory was wrong. Maybe I was in the wrong market and I should look for better product market fit. And you become much more flexible. And that allows you to, you know, to then adjust and, and try something that might have a better shot of working. So Adam, what are some things in your life, if you don't mind sharing, where you feel like you caught yourself doubling down on a losing course of action and you were able to catch yourself and, and write that shit? <laughs> I usually catch myself after it's done and I'm looking for a story to tell on a podcast episode or in class. Uh, I've, a time where I've caught it. Let's see. Oh, I, I actually have one. I didn't catch it on my own, but uh, with <laughs> with the help of uh, of somebody knowledgeable. Uh, so let's see, we'll, we'll go back to when I was writing my first book. Uh, I, um, I, I got introduced to a couple of agents. Uh, I picked this amazing, amazing literary agent, Richard Pine. And Richard said, okay, put together a book proposal. And I got so excited while I was writing the proposal that I accidentally wrote the book. <laughs> I, I was supposed to write a proposal over the summer. Uh-huh. And end of the summer, I had over 100,000 words. I sent it to Richard. And he said... I don't even know if your academic colleagues would read this. Like this is this is boring. It's uh-huh. not going to work. Start over. And I threw out about 100 2000 words. I salvaged maybe 1000 of them. And I rewrote the book from scratch and the great advice Richard gave me was he said write like you teach, not mm-hmm. like you write research papers. And the voice completely changed. You know, there were many more stories. It was much more relatable to people's lives and it ended up becoming my first book. And the reason now that I get to share my ideas with an audience that's, that's not just you know in, in a business school. And I think 
it would have been really easy to double down in that situation and say, you know what? I already wrote 100,000 words. It's a long yes. book. I covered a lot of ground. I put a lot of energy into it. Uh, I should just you know, go forward with this. And I'm, I could not be more thrilled that I didn't. Yeah, we see that with people that buy a stock and it goes down and they just keep throwing good money after bad or, or making a bad relationship and then trying to salvage it. What would you say motivates human beings when all the facts are telling them this is bad, we need to cut the anchor to just keep on going with it? Well, a lot of people explain it in terms of economics, right? That it's all about sunk costs. But the most powerful forces are actually emotional. Uh, it's, it, it essentially boils down to ego, image, and regret. So ego is, I don't want to look in the mirror and admit that I failed. Image is, I don't, want to I don't want everybody else to think that I'm a failure. And then regret is, if I pull the plug too soon, I'll always wonder what might have been. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, maybe compounding that problem is, uh, is hustle culture, right? Where if, if you take grit too far, you think you're never supposed to quit at anything. And that means that you're always going to assume that pulling the plug is actually a failure of persistence as opposed to saying, actually, that's, that's just good judgment. It's having the wisdom to know when to grit versus when to quit. That's so good. I made a video actually about that. And what I talked about Wait, is- Wait, what? Tell me more. Yeah. When uh, I use an analogy of if like, you're trying to get to the top of a mountain and you take the wrong path, to continue going down that path and say, I'm not stopping is literally working the opposite of your goal, that actually quitting and going back the other direction is- progress. And it's sort of maybe rethinking would be a good way to put it, that just putting one foot in front of the other is not all that it takes. You actually have to look at the map and make sure you're going in the right direction. Is that sort of what you're getting at? <laughs> not, not only sort of what I'm getting at, I literally just gave a new TED Talk about this exact topic, uh, <laughs> which includes a story about how I got stranded at the summit of a volcano because hilarious. I was so attached to the goal of getting to the top that I failed to realize the ultimate objective was to make it back down. I'm particularly susceptible to this because go I tend to compare myself to other people and I always want to be faster than everyone else. So sometimes I end up going faster than everybody else in the wrong direction. And the people who move slower and turn back and went the right way actually beat me to the punch. If you don't mind, would you mind sharing some of the way that these insights that you're talking about had an effect on two huge cell phone companies, BlackBerry and Apple? <laughs> I can try. Uh, the, the BlackBerry story, just it hurts to this day. I was such a BlackBerry fan. I still miss the keyboard. I will never type as fast on an iPhone, uh, but I finally had to abandon it. Uh, so the, the short version of the story is you, you have this incredibly brilliant electrical engineer, Mike Lazaridis, who you know, essentially reimagines the way we all communicate, right? And takes a two-way pager and turns it into a smartphone. And all of a sudden, we're all able to send emails on the go. And then he falls in love with his baby and refuses to rethink mm -hmm. it. Uh, brilliant at thinking, not so comfortable with rethinking. Uh, so one of the critical moments is uh, people people start to make a case that they should have a working internet browser. Nah, nah, you know what? Everybody's really happy with the email features. Then there's a whole discussion about whether should be there should be a touchscreen. No, people love the keyboard. Uh, and he's focusing on you know the tastes of millions of users in business and government who are big fans, overlooking that there's an untapped market of billions of consumers who might want a touchscreen for home, home entertainment. And then the idea of putting a computer in your pocket, nah, we don't need to do that either when he figures out that Apple's starting to do that. And then you know, BlackBerry goes from you know, being a, what, 70 or $80 billion company at its peak with a uh, good half of the market share um, in North America uh, to just obliterated in the span of a few years. 
they never even built a second product. Can you imagine having $70 billion at your valuation and saying, we're just going to keep making different versions of the BlackBerry? Well, Blockbuster did that. I mean, that's pretty, that's low hanging fruit to go after them. The same concept of (laughs) rethinking. You've got me thinking here, Adam, with the way that sort of technology is impacting the world. It's not, the world's always changed. Okay. This isn't new. We could go back a hundred years and find examples of people that rethought better than others. My impression is that we have to do, this is becoming more important than it was in the past because things are changing faster at a faster rate than they used to. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Although I'm open to rethinking it if you if you have some data <laughs> to suggest otherwise. But yeah, I mean, it, knowledge, knowledge seems to be increasing at an accelerating rate. Change seems to be happening faster. We've all watched digital disruption touch industries that we thought were completely immune to it. And I think Paul Graham has a great way of capturing it. He says, look, so, some of the time, it's not that you were wrong originally. It's that you are an expert for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and I think expertise is becoming obsolete faster than it ever used to. Th- you know, that obviously opens doors for all kinds of interesting opportunities. But the the Apple version of the story, I think, is very different from the one that many people tell. So uh, I was interested in Apple's rethinking process as a contrast to, you know, to what we saw at RIM with BlackBerry. And I sought out a whole bunch of people who had worked closely with Steve Jobs, uh, from Ed Catmull, Pixar co-founder and longtime CEO, to a lot of the engineers and designers who, who had helped to make the iPhone, like Tony Fidel. And I learned that, that for a long time, Steve Jobs was completely resistant to making a phone. He hated yeah. phones. He hated the, the cell phone carriers and the relationships they managed. Um, he hated the fact that the technology was clunky and the products weren't elegant. Sometimes he would get so frustrated, he would chuck his phone at the wall and smash it because uh, he thought it was just such a piece of garbage. Uh, and yet he knew he needed one. And it was a whole team of engineers and designers who spent over six months trying to sort of break down his resistance uh, and convince him to rethink his conviction that Apple shouldn't become a phone company. And of, of all the tactics they used, I thought the most interesting one was they finally said, hey, you know, Steve, I, I hear that Microsoft is working on a tablet. And I know like these, you know, these smartphones and tablets, they're for the pocket protector crowd. But how cool would it be if we design one of those? And all of a sudden, his competitive juices got flowing, and he started thinking about the Apple elegant version of a tablet or a cell phone. And then they convinced him that Apple wasn't going to become a phone company, that they were, they were just going to take the Mac and add a little bit of a calling feature on the side. And then he was all in. And I think the, the interesting story there is that you know, the myth is that Steve Jobs created a reality distortion field that led everyone else to think different. The reality is that Apple's renaissance came because he surrounded himself with a group of people who knew how to get him to think again. You know, the irony in this is that we call it a phone, but I probably use it for the phone feature less than everything else that that thing ever does. (laughs) That is so true, especially now in Zoom world, right? When was the last time you had an actual phone call? Well, and when was the last time you got a phone call and it didn't piss you off? (laughs) Why are you calling me right now? I'm trying to use my phone. That's that's every single time what I think. (laughs) That is so true. You know, I, this this actually might force me to rethink something. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about what a, what friendship is, and I, I decided that a real friend is somebody that can call you without a scheduled time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and now I'm like That's maybe right. not. I I don't want to hear from somebody when I'm not expecting them. <laughs> don't call me, please. Schedule it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, David, David, if you called me, I would still be like, why is David calling me? Like, why is, yeah. like, David's my best friend. And I'm like, I, I don't know, man. Why, why are you calling me? 
So yeah, it's it's fascinating that's the way that's changed. So maybe it's a good transition then is to is to go into Steve Jobs had people that had to convince him of this. And I know a, a large chunk of uh, think again is about getting other people to think differently. I get, whether it's negotiation, you know, we're, we're in real estate, right? So negotiations are life. Like so much of what we do is trying to get other people on board, whether it's, hey, you should put money in my real estate deal or, hey, you should sell me your property or whatever. So how do we convince other people to rethink their thoughts? What have you found there? Well, I think the mistake I've always made in logic bully mode is just to give as many reasons as possible. <laughs> and my, I guess my assumption has been that if I could give you 14 reasons to change your mind, that's better than three. And then I came across a bunch of data showing the exact opposite. There's a, mm. a study of expert negotiators comparing them to less effective negotiators, showing that one of the things the experts do differently is they actually give fewer reasons to back up a proposal, uh, typically only two or three at most. And I'm, I'm tempted to give you at least nine reasons why <laughs> too many reasons is a bad idea. <laughs> But I think there are two that really matter here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to practice what I teach here. Um, first reason too many reasons is bad is you end up raising the person's awareness that you're trying to influence them. And they're like, whoa, I don't want to be manipulated. And they put their guard up. And the second is that you dilute your argument. That if somebody does not want to say yes or they don't want to open their mind to your point of view, if you give them eight reasons, they'll just pick the least compelling one and throw uh -huh. out the whole case. Whereas if you just lead with your one or two strongest, it's a little bit harder for them to find an excuse to say no. And then what I've started doing now is, is just coming in and saying, look, here's the, you know, the reason that I think this is a compelling idea. What do you think of this? Um, what do you see as the, you know, the pros of my argument and the cons of my argument? And then I actually get to learn something from their reaction. And then I can pick from my, my basket of reasons the one that might actually be relevant to their values and interests cause them to realize on their own that their argument might, might not be as strong as what they thought it was when they have to defend it. And I think that's such a key point of what you're saying, Adam, because it's always tempting to try to use our own force to overcome the resistance of the person that sees the situation different than we do. But then, like you said, they just look for a chink in our armor. They focus on the chink. They ignore the rest of the armor. But when they're the ones who have to explain why they think you're wrong or how their solution would work, it's they become aware of the, their own flaws, which may be stronger than yours. Do you want to expand on that a little bit, like what you've learned and what you talk about in the book? Yeah, David, I think that's it's it's such an important point, and it's something that I was never taught to do, even after working as a negotiator and teaching negotiations. Um, the turning point for me was I met an entrepreneur named Rufus Griscom, and Rufus had done something that I'd never seen in startup pitches. Uh, he actually included a slide in his pitch deck when he was pitching one of his companies that said, here are the three reasons you should not invest. Hmm. And that first year he went to Sand Hill Road, he brought in over $3 million in, in venture capital funding. And then two years later, he goes to sell his company and he includes a slide that says, here are the five reasons you should not buy his company. It ends up getting acquired for 40 million US dollars. Not bad, right? So what's going on here? Well, part of it is a marketing gimmick. He's, you know, he's sort of intriguing people with something different. He's getting their attention. He's signaling that he's a nonconformist. But when he gives reasons not to invest and not to buy, he makes it harder for his audience to come up with their own objections. Mm -hmm. And the harder they have to work to find flaws in his company, the less flawed they think his company is. And so I think, you know, it's obvious to, to think about the negotiation um, applications of this. But one of my favorites is just to say, you know what? 
I've um, I've got this this proposal. Let me just tell you, here's what I see as the upsides and the downsides of it, and would love to hear what you think of those. Uh, and then the other person is often in a problem solving mode to say, well, let me see if I can mm-hmm. if I can get the good without the bad. And now we're starting to work toward common ground. It's almost like you're getting them. Like when you when you come at it with this is the problem or this is this is what's not good about it. I mean, I'll give you a real, a real life example. I buy a lot of mobile home parks, like just like you know trailer parks, and as uh, one does, yes, yes, I, as I one also does, do yes. that for fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so I buy these, and uh, like I, I convince you know people, I raise a lot of money for them, and people put money with my company, we buy them, but. Like in initially, whenever I talk to anybody about mobile home parks, the first thing you got is all the reasons why it's a bad idea. And then I can fight them back on it. Well, no, like this is why it's really good. And they're like, well, what about this problem? And, you know, like what if they, they lose their job because it's at the bottom of the economy? And, and, uh, but if I start with that stuff, like, yeah, the big problem with mobile home parks is that this thing, it immediately puts them into like, well, how, yeah, problem solving mode. I'm going to solve this guy's problem. No, yes. Actually, it's probably not that big of a deal because of this. And, and they start fighting for me against, instead of against me. You know what I love about that is you're giving them an opportunity to look smart, right? Nor- yeah, normally, yeah. when you go in with this pitch, they show their genius by poking holes in your plan. Mm-hmm. If you've already found the holes, then the only way they can show off is to close them. That's, That's so good. good. And Brandon, you do that naturally very well, by the way. <laughs> do I? Like, do I? Okay, yes. good. <laughs> you're like a wizard. You can just make people think that they're smarter than they really are. And frequently okay, do. good. I, and I, I can I say that. that I'm your, uh, your lab mouse. Experiment more than <laughs> no, it's it's disarming though, right? People yes. people yeah. don't expect it, and you know, I think at the end of the day, people are going to find the flaws in your plan. You mm. might as well get the credit for having the foresight to spot them and the integrity to acknowledge them. That's we have to talk about this on my real estate team all the time, all the time, because so much of of people making decisions to buy a house or sell a house or whatever is psychology based. It's uh, everything is that, and it's tempting to want to tell the person here's why you should do this. And the first thing that makes them think is you just want a commission. You're just telling me this. Now they have to find all the reasons why they shouldn't listen to what you're saying. And what we're frequently trying to do is to get them to tell us what they want. And then we actually poke holes in what they're saying. And that's exactly what you're saying. Then they defend it. And through that process, that's where the person realizes, oh, that is really the house that I want. That is the one, like I hear my own words and you're actually helping bring it out of them. So it's a way of serving people is what I've found is helping them get to the core of what they're actually feeling. You just described the secret sauce of every great real estate agent I've ever worked with. That's exactly it. That's what makes David a good agent. David's one of the, he's a humble guy, but he's one of the biggest, like best real estate agents in the country. And he kills it. And it's not because, and I've always said this about you, David, actually, when talking about you with other people, it's not because David's good at real, being a real estate agent, like filling out paperwork and listing a house. Well, that's a backhanded compliment. (laughs) He's not a good he, agent, but he's a good he, agent no, anyway. He's a good agent. Get used to it, As we become friends, you're going to feel it too. That. No, but I would say it's, I, I will get in a car with David and we'll be driving together somewhere and he'll take a call with a client. And the way he communicates to these clients, like I will like pull the car over and like grab my phone and record him because it's so good what he's like, the psychology that goes into what he does. Because he's never, he never fights them. He, David, you never argue with them. You never fight them like on their thoughts. You're just like, maneuver them and you get them fighting against you. Like, I don't know. I don't know what you do. It's like, it's like magic. I don't know. Maybe that's because you were a cop at one point. Well, Adam's basically explaining it. I, 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 what I I love about Adam's book and and Adam's, (laughs) your philosophies is you're taking what the person does naturally well and explaining to the world, this is how it works. And I feel like people in Adam's position are actually more important to humanity than just like a Michael Jordan where nobody else in the world could be a Michael (laughs) Jordan, right? You ask Tiger Woods, how do you putt like that? He doesn't know. 
He just does it. <laughs> but like Adam breaks it down so that we can all become better. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I have to push back because one, if there's no MJ or Tiger, then I have nothing <laughs> to study and learn from and explain. True. And two, mm. I think you just said that my contribution to the world is giving you language for things you already know. Maybe <laughs> your contribution to this book. You're also a pretty good uh, uh, diver. And you have an amazing head of hair. Yeah, and I hear your magician game is on fleek. So I wouldn't say that's your only contribution to the world. Well, I, I, I will try to reflect on that and see if it, it leads me to anything interesting. But I, I do think there's a, there's a little bit of a trap that I worry about when, you know, when we start to unpack some of these principles. Uh, sometimes if they come naturally to you, thinking about them too much can yes. take you out of autopilot and you, yeah. don't, you don't actually apply them as smoothly as you would have. And it's the same thing like um, in, in sports. I don't know. A lot of people experience this playing tennis, right? You're told to switch your grip on your serve. And all of a sudden, you're aware of all your motions and uh -huh. you can't quite hit the ball in anymore. And you have to take some speed off of it. Um, and you have to take a step backward in order to go two steps forward. And I always worry that somebody is going to, you know, they're going to understand the psychology of a principle that's worked for them. They're going to start thinking about it too much. Then they mm. overthink it. And then they decide it's not going to work for them anymore, as opposed to saying, all right, how do I take that understanding of it to tweak it and make it a little bit better and know that I might run a few experiments initially that don't work before I find the sweet spot? Brandon, do you feel that's a thing that you you struggle with in your life? Because you seem to be you're amazing at marketing, and you never stop readjusting and retweaking what you're working on when it comes to that. David's like everyone's cheerleader today. This is great. We all need a David in our life. It just <laughs> makes me feel really good about myself. I guess con constantly. Um, my my initial my initial thought there was uh, you said tennis. I think racquetball. Like when I play racquetball, I have to like relax my mind to the point that I'm not thinking about what it is because then I can go and hit like do a, like it's like. It's like running down a hill. You ever run down a hill like when you're hiking and like your your foot is like hitting like rock, you know, like rock to rock to rock, like in a good spot, right? Like you're not falling. But as soon as you're thinking about where's my foot going, you start falling over because you overthink it. You have to like relax your your focus to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, all the time. That's why, that's why when David says something like, Brandon, you're really good at marketing. Uh, tell us your marketing skills. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't ask me that question. All right, I want I want to apply this to a real world situation and get a little bit controversial right now. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna piss off some people here right now. Vaccines, let's call it COVID vaccine. I did a survey on my Instagram the other day and I said, "Are you gonna take the vaccine this year in 2021? Are you gonna go get the the vaccine?" 48% of people said no, and 52% said yes. And now maybe my audience is not perfectly aligned to the U.S. world, but I think it's probably pretty close. I think there's a lot of people who will not take the vaccine because there's a computer chip being put into it by Bill Gates, who's going to put us into the Facebook or something. I don't know what the theory is, right? Now, whether or not the vaccine right or wrong, how does this apply? Like this concept of giving other people to get on board, like they say we need 70% or whatever it is to get the vaccine to get herd immunity. And if we're not going to get that, how, how do you, I don't want to say this sounds bad to say, how do you convince your family and friends to go get a vaccine, right? I don't want to go that, that route, but how does this play into this entire concept of the vaccine? Uh, how does this showcase what you teach? What, what I want people to do is make informed decisions, right? And I, I worry right now, especially there are a lot of fears out, out there that just don't track with at least what I understand to be the scientific evidence. So what I want to do is open people's minds to, to reevaluating, right? To rethinking. And my favorite way to have that conversation comes out of what counseling psychologists call motivational interviewing, which is the premise is, is incredibly simple, that it's very hard to force somebody to change. 
you're much better off helping them find their own motivation to change. Mm -hmm. And so Brandon, the first thing I would do differently is I would shift that poll that you ran. And instead of asking, are you going to get the vaccine this year? I would say, what are the odds that you get the vaccine this year? I don't want you to commit to a yes or no. I want you to recognize your own ambivalence. Very few people will say 0%, right? I tried this with a friend who's extremely opposed to vaccines, uh, hasn't had his children get any, uh, has told me many times, I will never let someone inject something into my body. And the first time I ever had what I think was a reasonable, open-minded conversation with him was when I said, what is your lifetime probability of getting a COVID vaccine? And he said, it's pretty low. And I was shocked. I said, what do you mean it's not zero? Like, of course it's going to be zero. And he said, well, you don't know what will change in the future. You know, he said, if, if COVID had a hundred percent fatality rate and, you know, a 10 X transmission rate, uh, like, I might as well roll the dice or, uh-huh. you know, if I'm worried about the long-term risks of it, which at that time we had less evidence about than we do now, he said, you know, maybe when I'm 85 years old, I'm not worried about that anymore. And all of a sudden what I realized was he was committing to being open-minded. And I think that's what motivational interviewing is about, right? Asking people about their own reasons to stay the course and their own reasons to change and then showing humility and curiosity, right? I don't know what's going to change your mind, but I would, I would just be eager to understand what it is that, you know, might shift you. So my next question for him was, well, you know, okay, it's how low is it? Right. And he finally said, I don't know, maybe half a percent, a percent at most. I said, what conditions would, would change that? What would lead you to raise your probability? And then he started spelling out what would need to happen to convince him that the benefits of a vaccine would outweigh the costs. And all of a sudden, we're having a rational evidence-based conversation. And then we can start to track the data. And if, if one of those conditions changes, he might actually consider it. Now, did, did I change his mind that day? No. Um, did, did I have a better discussion with him than I've ever had in the past? Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably where I would start. That's really good. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Always find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet, Chardonnay, or maybe you're more of a whiskey drinker. Well, one of their single-barrel bourbons is sure to please. With a little help from one of their friendly guides, find the perfect bottle that's just right for you. Hosting friends or family and don't have time to shop in store? Well, that's no problem because Total Wine & More makes it easy to get everything you need for any occasion with curbside pickup and delivery. But you know what the best thing about shopping at Total Wine & More is? That every bottle comes with the confidence of knowing you just found something amazing. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. 
That's TotalWine.com. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. I had a conversation actually with an older, uh, like a, a much older friend of mine uh, who like, it was a woman in her like almost seventies and she was saying how the vaccine is so dangerous and she's not going to take it. And again, I understand the, the, the fear that that goes into that, but I, I, I wanted to go into it. And I, I guess I, I really did. I started with the logic bully. I'm like, let's go through yeah. the number, the math here, right? Let yes. me tell you the math. Like you are overweight and have a lot of health problems. If you get COVID, you, you have a 3% chance of dying. I'm like, I, I said, I think I said those exact words to her. And uh, I'm like, if you get the vaccine, you have a much less than 3% chance of dying. And it didn't, I mean, didn't even phase, like nothing, like no phase in at all for this woman. And I'm like, why? Like, why? And it's because of that approach of like, I just went in there with, with logic. And yeah, I mean, you're, you're preaching it at her, right? You're prosecuting her fears. And that puts people on the defensive, which is the same thing that I've done for years. And it's a completely different conversation if you come in and say, there is a lot of confusing information out there. Um, mm-hmm. I know, you know, it's we, we don't have any kind of government mandate, right? Everybody has the freedom to make up their own minds. Yep. Um, and I would, I'm, I'm really just, you know, trying to figure out what's, what's driving people's decisions on this. I would love to understand what information you have, what you know, um, and what questions you have. And then, you know, at some point in the conversation, you could say, I've been doing a lot of reading on this. Um, you know, I'd love to weigh in if you're comfortable uh, with some of the things that I've heard. And, you know, I think some of them are maybe consistent with your fears, right? There are some unknowns still, um, given that mRNA has not been around for decades. Um, and some of them might actually help to calm some of your fears or, or even, you know, eliminate them. Are you interested in, you know, in, in sharing and having that conversation? And I think the thing that I forget when I fail to do that, just like, <laughs> like you, Brandon, is like people, people generally don't listen until they feel heard. Yeah. And I, I'm like, you, you, you are, you are misinformed. I, I want to make sure I, I fix that. I'm like, nope, I really need to understand where you're coming from. And even just like, why are you so afraid? And why are you afraid of vaccines, but not afraid of COVID? The more I understand about that, the mm-hmm. more I can, again, speak to your values and your motivations. Well, I think what you're describing is the scientist mindset wants to understand. It doesn't want to change. Scientists don't, they, at least good scientists, don't go into a situation and say, I'm going to find a bunch of data that's going to support a hypothesis that I've already decided on. They look at the data and let that make their decision. And when we've already made up our mind that that person is wrong, we're trying to pick the data and what they say and use it against them as opposed to the unbiased scientist that walks in and says, well, let me understand without trying to change this other person. David, I think that's spot on. And I think this is this is exactly what's been useful for me in talking to people who disagree with me on all kinds of charge issues, right, is I, I've tried to ask myself, what would a scientist do in this situation? So let's say you encounter somebody who has vastly different political views or somebody who's believing in some conspiracy theories. The first thing that I try to think is, what an interesting specimen. (laughs) This is so strange. Like this person is almost an alien. I cannot believe that someone else thinks this way. And what that does is it makes me curious. It makes me, you know, it Mm -hmm. makes me excited to find out more. And then I'm there to interview them, right? To try to understand them. And of course, you know, if, if, if I discover that, you know, that they're interested in my perspective or they want my help, that might open a door. But it's also just learning for me to say, all right, 
Next time I talk to somebody with views that are different from mine, maybe I'll pick up something in this conversation that will help me be a little bit more convincing. The times that I've done that well, this probably 80% of the time, I found that what we're arguing over or disagreeing on, we don't even have the same definition of, and yeah. it's not even a real disagreement. Like this comes up a lot of the time with um, debt. Should you pay off your debt or should you borrow money to grow your wealth? In our world, this is a big one. Almost every time I've been disagreeing with somebody, what I think of when I think of debt is uh, borrowing money at a low rate that will earn you money at a higher rate relatively safely with a million different escape plans or exit strategies. <laughs> that's not what most think, of your clients think that, of. That's exactly right. They're like <laughs> thinking 18% credit card debt. I'm in the hole forever. And, yeah. yeah. For a long time, just saying HELOC equaled irresponsible choice to buy a boat and a Corvette that will cause you to lose your house. Okay. And when I was saying you should get a HELOC and they were like, I will never get a HELOC. We would get in these big arguments and I'm like, Oh, this person's so dumb. I never stopped to think about <laughs> if I thought what they thought I'd be saying the same thing back to me that that would be really dumb. And I can't, there's so many hot button issues in America that if we sat down with both sides and said, what does this term mean to you? It would be wildly different. And yet we're still arguing over that term. Oh, that would be so helpful. I, it's funny. I just did an episode of my work-life podcast on the idea that when we face a conflict, we try to rush into a solution. And what we forget to do is actually agree on what the problem is we're trying to solve. I just applied this this, this morning. It was, a, it was a chance to practice one of these principles. And I had a, a disagreement with my team. And we started immediately talking about the solutions. I'm like, wait, we haven't even talked about what the problem is and whether we're aligned on the definition of it. And what I love about that is oftentimes we realize we've just you know, had different definitions of the same term, like you were saying, David, um, or we've, um, we've just failed to realize that we haven't even practiced some, you know, any consensus building or alignment. And the process of agreeing on what the problem is actually gets us in the mode of saying, all right, we do have some common ground here. We can work from some common facts. And one, one example of this that I see all the time is when people say that's unfair. Uh, you see it, right, with, I'm sure you see it all the time with, um, with offers on, on houses. You also, I run into it a lot with compensation. Uh, and, you know, especially if a team has a success, how do we share the, you know, the proceeds? And one person says it's unfair and they think the other person is being unjust. You're like, wait, there are at least three defi definitions of fairness. There's equality where everybody gets the same amount. There's equity where everybody gets what they earned. And then there's need where the most disadvantaged person, you know, gets whatever is going to put them in a decent position. And oftentimes one person thinks they're being fair because they're doing equity. And another person's like, wait, that's not equality. What if we actually defined what fairness meant? Such, a good, such point. a good point. Jinx, David Green. I think I said it slightly before you. Your internet <laughs> delay is caused you to lose that, Jinx. I don't think you can know that. Yeah, I don't think you can know that. I think you should rethink that. Did you guys do when you were kids, Jinx was like, was Jinx you owe me a Coke or was Jinx like you punch somebody in the arm or what? Or you can't talk to me? Depends until... on your definition of Jinx, Brandon. Yeah. There's, there's yeah, many there, definitions of that game. So many. We had, um, we had bottle Jinx. Yeah, you had to be silent. Yeah, mine was you couldn't talk until somebody said your name. That was our jinx. And then somebody later on in life, it was like, Jinx, you owe me a Coke. And I'm like, I'm a moron over there. But how many little kids get in arguments about the right way to play the jinx game, right? I mean, this is a good example of what we do as grownups. It's the same thing. And so that's why I, I always preferred rock, paper, scissors. There's only one set of rules. <laughs> Next question I want to talk about real quick. And, and again, it's it, we're staying on the kind of controversial side of things, but I think it's fascinating is flip-flopping when it comes to politicians, when it comes to 
I mean, Dr. Fauci, right? How many times have people pulled out that clip of like him saying, you don't need to wear a mask. And now it's like, you got to wear 12 masks. And like people love to jump on people rethinking. Yet we're, we seem to be okay with ourselves flip-flopping on opinions. Like the things I think today are very different than I thought 10 years. I used to think millionaires were just like, if you were a millionaire, you were a horrible person. But today I think millionaires are all right. I mean, many of them. So how does, how does this play into this idea of flip-flopping or changing one's opinion? Like, how do you... Like, is that okay? What is your research found on that? Well, I think it depends on why you're changing your mind, right? If, if you're doing it in politician mindset because you're trying to, you know, to play to your base uh, or to get somebody's buy-in or approval, then we should accuse you of hypocrisy and of violating your principles. I think, though, there's another kind of flip-flopping, uh, which is called learning, <laughs> which means <laughs> I changed my mind because I'm in scientist mode and I came across a better argument or more rigorous evidence uh, where if you don't flip-flop, you're being a, st- you're being a stubborn idiot, right? Uh, and I think we need to praise people who do that kind of rethinking. Um, it's, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between them, but my, I guess my, my simple place to start is to say uh, I, I expect people to hold pretty firm on their core values, uh, but to be pretty flexible on their plans. And, you know, the political version of that is like, be true to your principles, but flexible on your policies. Like, it cracks me up. Um, if it weren't so sad, I would actually find this funny. Um, it's, I don't, I don't even know where to start, but the, the number of times that I've, you know, I've seen politicians feet held to the fire for, but wait, the policy that you ran on is now not being implemented. I'm like, well, what if you found out that that policy was not going to serve the goals that, that got you excited about it in the first place? Yeah, um, 100%. I mean, let, let's take Lincoln as an example of this. Lincoln, if, he, if Lincoln were president today, he would be accused of massive flip-flopping because coming into the White House, he did not plan to abolish slavery. He was convinced that it would tear the union apart permanently. How lucky are we that he changed his mind, right? And he wasn't changing his principles, he was always interested in ending this horrendous institution. Uh, he just thought the cost was too high. And luckily, he was willing to shift his policy uh, in order to, to make that change. And, you know, I think most of us would agree that Lincoln was our greatest president. If he could change his mind, the rest of us can, too. That's really good. And to take this back to business, uh, you know, or even real estate specifically, right? Like you might have a plan, like this is what my company is going to do, or we're going to buy, we're going to buy, okay, real example, I'm going to buy mobile home parks. That was my thing. And I, I broadcasted it to the world and, and like everyone, millions of people know I'm buying mobile home parks. That's what I do. I buy trailer parks. Well, that, now I'm like, I can't, I like, I can't buy quite enough of them. I think there's other good investments out there as well. So now like we're looking at, we're doing some self storage this year. We're doing some multi and people are like, Oh, you changing your opinion. You're changing your, you're changing your, your belief. I'm like, no, nothing's wrong with what I had before, but I'm, I'm adding on more because the, the economy has changed. The world changed a little bit. And so, but that's making me more nimble. I think, I think I'll be more successful because I'm adding these things on. Uh, and so just anything, if, if you're beginning, you want to like, if the value is I want financial independence or I want to not have to, yes. to work for the man for the next 80 years of my life and then retire on social security, that's the value. The policy can change throughout life. This is, you know, the real estate world much better than I do, but I see this in every industry. Like people just, this is an escalation of commitment problem, right? You have a strategy. You're like, well, the strategy that, you know, that made sense for your U.S. launch may not apply to China, right? And then the strategy that made sense six years ago may not be relevant today. And, you know, I also, I just think about this in personal life too, that if you could rewind the clock, like if you grew up in the 1700s, 
imagine all the ridiculous opinions you would have. There are going to be people a hundred years from now who look at us that way. And so we might want to be a little bit more humble about the things we're sure are true and right. You know, one thing that drives me crazy, and this brings back what we talked about a minute ago, is that you can get data to back up anything that you want it to say too, right? Like I can, I can pull out studies right now that show you why, I don't know, whatever, masks work and why masks don't work. And I can show you data that supports my claim all day long. So how do we deal in a world that there's so much data out there to support anything, yeah. right? Like how do you, how do we handle that? And how do we, how do we stay humble and, and get humility that things could change in that world? Well, scientists actually have a, a good set of rules around how to do this. We agree on the methods before we look at the results. So, and I've, I've done this, if we want to go back to the vaccine debate for a second, yeah. uh, one of the things I've, I've done that's been extremely productive with some of my friends who are fearful of them is to say, let's, let's talk through what a well-designed, rigorous study would look like. So obviously it needs to be a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. Okay, you're worried about you know, pharma maybe leading to biases or manipulation of data. Let's get an independent team of scientists who have tenure. Um, you know, let's, let's start to talk through how we could mitigate against all the factors that you're afraid of. And then once we agree on the design, you have to believe what the experiment shows because you've already decided that you would trust what comes out of it. Uh, so I think that's that's something we could do in, in a lot of parts of life, right? Right. You have to agree on um, on the standards of logic uh, or on the standards of evidence before you know what the outcome is. And one of the one of the other things I might recommend uh, this comes from the world of super forecasters. Uh, so you're, I think you guys are familiar with this, but I, I I just I think these people are so interesting. They compete in tournaments to try to predict future events, like who's going to win the next World Cup or the next presidential election. And one of the things that the typical forecasters do is they imagine what the future is going to look like, and then they formulate a prediction and a strategy around that. Super forecasters, they imagine seven or eight possible futures, and then they choose the strategy that has the best chance of working in several of them, which means it's more robust. And then they say, all right, I might be wrong about a bunch of these. And they make a list of conditions that would change their mind. And by listing those conditions up front, they're holding themselves accountable and staying honest. Is this why everybody, I mean, everybody is a strong word, but pretty much everybody was wrong about Donald Trump back in 2016. Like, like I, everybody, I feel like had, had Hillary for that thing and like good or bad. I'm not trying to get political with it, but it, but it was like, it was shocking how, how many people were wrong on that. Is that because they all looked at it, what they wanted and they were bringing that bias into it? I think that's a lot of it. I think that, you know, people generally, people are, they're motivated. Well, I guess I would say in the, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that motivation generally drives thinking more than the reverse, right? What you want to be true affects how you think much more than your thinking drives what you want to be true. And um, I think a lot of people didn't want Donald Trump to win. I think a lot of people also anchored on the past and said, well, here are the factors that normally are critical to winning an election, and he's breaking a lot of the rules. And I wrote about this incredible super forecaster and think again, Jean-Pierre Bougam, who's he's not even in the world of polling or politics. He's a military historian. And yet he predicted the rise of Trump, uh, giving him more than 50 percent of odds of winning the Republican nomination when Nate Silver had him at 6 percent. And most people thought he was a joke. Um, he's the world's most accurate election forecaster. And what Jean-Pierre does is he makes a tentative prediction and then he makes a list of conditions that would change his mind. And then he rigorously assesses whether those conditions have been met. Uh, I had such a, an interesting conversation with him after the book went to press where 
I said, all right, let's predict the results of, you know, the 2020 U.S. presidential election. And he said, I can't do it for two reasons. Number one, it's way too soon. I was talking to him in the, I think it was the summer of 2019. Uh, and he said, this is just way too early to know. And he said, secondly, um, I don't want to make a prediction because I'm afraid I'll become attached to it. And mm -hmm. that stands in the way of good forecasting. And I, I nudged him a little bit and twisted his arm. And he said, all right, based on the following factors, I think Biden has the best shot. Under the following circumstances, I would change my opinion. That night, he emails me and he says, uh, I regret making any kind of prediction. I think it might be Elizabeth Warren, and here's why, but here's what would shift me back. A couple months later, he was betting on Bernie Sanders, and then he changed back to Biden and ended up getting the prediction right. And that is the hallmark of being a super forecaster. More than anything else, more than their intelligence, more than their grit, what distinguishes them from their peers is they change their minds about twice as often. They rethink more frequently. And mm. that seems like a good habit to be in. Really stuff, good stuff, man. Well, we don't want to take up all your time today, so we want to get you out of here in a, in a few. But let's go to, to our last segment of the show. It's time for our Famous Four. The Famous Four is part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week. So we're going to throw them at you right now. Adam, number one, is there a habit or a trait in your life that you're trying to develop, trying to improve, trying to work on? Something that you're, uh, you're personally trying to improve upon? One thing that I'm trying to work on, which is incredibly difficult for me, um, extraordinarily difficult, is to be comfortable with ignorance. I grew up as a kid who, I, I guess I, I either got liked or gained status by knowing things and having answers. And I'm trying to get more comfortable knowing what I don't know. So in the mm -hmm. book, I, I started making an ignorance list of all the things I'm clueless about. I'm like, I know nothing about chemistry and food and fashion and financial markets. Uh, as a, a way of putting it out there to say, look, I am going to force myself to be comfortable admitting things I don't know. And I'm still working on, you know, those moments when like, what, uh, you, do you remember that episode of Friends where everybody's talking about something and Joey has no idea what's going on, but he just mm -hmm. kind of nods and smiles to fit in. <laughs> I, I'm working on not being that guy, but actually yeah. saying, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. I am completely, completely an idiot on this topic. Could you please teach me something? You know, there's a, there's a book, uh, you know, the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. He says in there a line that it was like, kind of like almost like not a throwaway line, but it wasn't a major part of the book. People don't talk about it, but it made such a huge impact on my life. And he said that, and I don't remember if he's talking about him or his parents or something like that, but they always, they make it a goal in their life to never say, yeah, yeah, I, I understand until they truly understand. So if they have to dig in over and over when, cause you know, like you, you talk to somebody and they're trying to explain it to you and you're like, after like the second time you ask them, you still don't get it. You say you get it just to move on the conversation. But he made the statement yeah. about how, you know, he'll just keep digging in. Like, no, I, I still don't understand it. Make it more simple for me. And that it made a profound impact on me because I know I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I just want to pretend I know it and move on. So they don't think I'm an idiot. That's the curse of agreeableness. And you know, Tim, Tim is, he, Tim is a great role model for this. Uh, I, the first, the first conversation I ever had with him, he was asking me about productivity like, you've spent your whole career studying this. You're one of the most productive people on earth. Why are you asking me about yeah. it? And he said, <laughs> because I want to find out if there's something that I don't know. And yeah. it's only after hearing about your data and your approach that I'll discover whether you know something that I don't. I'm like, no, no, no. I really, I really want to know a couple things that you know during this conversation. Please. <laughs> so good. All right, David. Next question. What's your favorite business book? Actually, not a big fan of business books. I love idea books. Uh, I think that you know too often business books are written in a niche way, 
to solve a specific problem or give practical advice. The books that I love most are the ones that that make me think differently or rethink things that I thought I knew. And yeah, I think they sometimes get branded as business books, uh, yeah. but I, I don't know if I'd call them them. Um, one that I love is The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. Uh, I think Dan did a better job than anything I've ever read capturing the magic of great groups. I think I actually just bought that one on Amazon, like randomly. Somebody also recommended it to me. So I highly, highly recommend all right. What about some of your hobbies? I would say these days my my hobbies are, I haven't played Ultimate Frisbee in a while, uh, but I used to play a weekly game. Uh, love playing Anagram Scrabble and Words with Friends. Uh, another, um, another favorite hobby is, um, I'm trying to think of, of how to best capture this. I don't know if it counts as a hobby. Can you, you can decide if it does or not. Um, I have... Uh, I have an ongoing Mario Kart online game uh, with people across the world, uh, friends and family that I don't get to see enough. And it's become one of my favorite things to do with my kids. Uh, is that a hobby? What do you mean you like you play on like you're all on the like what Nintendo something? We're all like, yeah, we're all racing on Nintendo Switch or doing battle mode. Uh, and ah. it's it's so fun to have like we have people in Michigan and people in Germany. And it, it feels like we're all connected. And it was especially during lockdown. Uh, it was kind of my my escape from COVID. Man, is it is it as good? I haven't played uh, Mario Kart since the Nintendo sixty four days, which was like that was my favorite game. The world battle mode on N sixty four was amazing for that. But is it just as good? Battle mode is not as good as it was on sixty four and Super Nintendo. I think the racing is even better. I'm gonna check it out. Mario Kart is one of those video games that they made perfectly that anyone can play it. <laughs> So if you, yeah. if you suck at video games, you can play it. And if you're really good at video games, you'll still like it. They were able to get every single demographic into that. That's so yeah. true. It's it's the opposite of playing a game like GoldenEye. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or Call of Duty or something where if yeah. you're not a hardcore person, you're not going to get into it. Yeah. The the barriers to entry are too high in some of those. Yep. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't get in. All right. My last question of the day. What do you think separates, and I know there's a million things and we could, you know, we could spend hours on this conversation, this, this question, but if you had to boil it down, successful entrepreneurs, thought leaders, business owners, however you want to look at that, successful people, what sets them apart from those who give up on their dreams or they, they, they never get started on them? Probably the biggest difference between successful entrepreneurs and people who fail at entrepreneurship or people who don't go for it at all is it's not that they're not afraid of failing. They're just even more afraid of failing to try. And that fear just propels. I mean, you guys have seen this throughout your careers, right? I have met so many people who have achieved extraordinary things in different fields and, you know, been curious about how did you feel comfortable taking the risk? I remember talking to Sarah Blakely about starting Spanx when she knew nothing about, you know, fashion or retail or even entrepreneurship or Reid Hoffman how in the world did you know you were ready to start LinkedIn? And both of them said, we didn't. Like we, we, we just, we had confidence in ourselves in, as learners. And I think what I took away from that conversation was, you know, when they ran the, the regret test, yeah, they'd regret failing, but they'd have much bigger regrets if they failed to try at all. I think there's one other thing that I might, might say is a little different, which is I think they, they define success differently too. It's not just about achieving their goals. It's about living their values. I think we should all have a clear hierarchy of values. And I don't know that we want to rethink it every day, but reflecting and revisiting maybe every year could be healthy. So I did this recently and I came out with uh, generosity, excellence, integrity, freedom, and learning. 
And now instead of saying like, did I, you know, did I hit my, my goals for how much I wanted to write this week? Um, what I'm much more likely to do is ask, did I spend this week aligned with those values? And I think it makes it a lot easier to say no to things that are not going to have impact and a lot easier to focus on things that really matter to me. That's so good. I got a buddy, um, name is Jefferson Bethke. He always says, rather than setting goals for what you want to have, why not set goals for who you want to be? Mm. And I always thought, I love that, that, that quote of, yeah, do I want to be a more giving person? Do I want to be more generous? So awesome, man. Well, thank you for joining us. This has been phenomenal. I love it. I'll let David ask the last question, but really, really appreciate having you here. And uh, yeah, book's amazing. So I'll let you talk about that as well in a minute. I hope you don't rethink that. But I, I do want to ask before we go, <laughs> having read the book, what's something I should rethink? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. If you want to think I about think, it while David's asking his question. I'm going to think about it while, yeah, go ahead. That's a good, very uh, generous of you there, Adam. Last question of the day is where can people find out more about you? Oh, that's kind of you to ask. Uh, possible sign of a giver rather than a taker. Uh, where can you find out more? I guess adamgrant.net. Uh, I put all my articles and videos up there, podcasts. Uh, there's also, um, I do a granted newsletter where I share a bunch of my favorite ideas on work and psychology a couple times a month. And I just, um, I love the fact that there are all these people in the world who are curious about what makes us tick and who really want to get better and, and do that using evidence. And so I, I just feel really fortunate to be in a position where I get to share some of those, those ideas and that knowledge. All right. I'm going to answer the question. All right. putting me on the spot here. I'm going to go with- I'm going to hold you accountable. Now, I don't know you really well. So I'll say that you maybe are already doing this in your personal life and you care about this, but I'm going to go with the, I think you should rethink careers and I'm going to say rethinking careers as being as important as they are. And- real estate investing being more important. That's that. That's what I'm going to go with. So, uh, wait, tell me more. Easy answer. You, I just think that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of people, a lot of writers and thought leaders talk a lot about careers and, and work and that kind of stuff. And I think we live in an entire world. That's a little bit weird. And that like, most of us are like, we don't really want to work that much in our life. We want to get out of it. We want to spend significantly more time with family and friends. And so I would say, again, I, th I think rethinking is the wrong word here. Cause again, I don't know if you think that way or not, but that's what I encourage you to think toward is how do I work significantly less pump out just as much good content? Cause I don't want to lose your content, but spend more time with family, friends. And wow, that's so interesting. What do you think? I think you're onto something really important there. Um, a long time ago when I think I was, I was pretty early in the org psych field, my sister told me, she said, not everyone has to have a calling in their job. Like it's okay to just have a job. Uh, or, you know, work that you like, but is not the center of your identity. Big rethinking moment for me. I, I totally agree with you, Brandon. I, even though I study work for a living, I don't think it should define us. Yeah. I just I happen to have a job that I find so mm -hmm. interesting and also think is, is useful in various ways in the world. And so when I end up working a lot, it's, it's cause I'm drawn to it. Um, not because I feel obligated or pressured to do it, but I, I still, I think I need to take this more seriously because I still find myself over committing a lot. And if I made work a little bit less central to who I am, I would probably be better at setting those boundaries. So what, what advice do you have for me about how to do that? You, wow. I, I know part of it is become a real estate investor, but go on. <laughs> 
No, I, I don't. And uh, by the way, I love, I, you can always tell you're interviewing a podcaster because they turn it around and, and they podcast question you. <laughs> I, you know, um, I've, I've bit my tongue so many times in this conversation because I knew you weren't going to let me do it for the whole thing. <laughs> no, those are, those are good shows though. Those are good shows. Uh, advice <laughs> for you, man. You know, and by the way, just to, just to support that, people oftentimes tell me I think too much about money and I, I, I think too much about work and real estate and success and being a millionaire. And I'm like, I really don't care that much about it. It just happens to be the line of work that fascinates me. So I, I'm right on there with you. Uh, I think it's easy to judge a person based on the work that they put out, the books that they write. And they're like, oh, that's all they must do is 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 think about that. But uh, man, I don't know. I would say the advice for you and everyone else is the phrase we use a lot around here is follow the fire. Like for whatever reason, there's like this thing will spark in you. You're like, oh man, like trailer park sounds super interesting, right? Like, like that's a weird thing that I just like leaned into, right? So like, as you go through life, you're like, you know what? I think it would be fun to take like six months off and do a mini retirement Tim Ferriss style. You're like, I'm going to lean into that. So yeah, lean, lean into those little like sparks because like we're all weird people and we're all wired weirdly and uh, everyone's got a different spark. So lean into it. I love that. It, it makes me wonder about the micro version of that. I was uh, I was just talking with um, Ricardo Semler, who had this crazy experiment at Semco in Brazil, uh, where he, among many things he did that I never thought would ever happen in a workplace, uh, he gave people the chance to just give up 10% of their salary to buy back a day a week at work. And he said, well, like, we'll treat this as an early retirement. You get like a retirement day every week and go do the thing that you want to do when you're retired, but you're probably going to be too old to do. And people have loved it. I'm like, why don't we do that? I'd, yeah. I'd be great. I'd love to have a four-day work week in any team I work with. Uh, and I think most of us could be as productive and oh, yeah. probably happier too, right? In four focus days than five yeah. unproductive ones. I, I'd be curious, did, was that a study he did? Like what percentage of people, and if he hasn't, we should do this study, but like, what percentage of people in the world like would say, yes, I would make that trade 10% for a day a week? That's a great question. I don't know. I know he he gave the opportunity to they have what nineteen thousand employees across a bunch of countries. Yeah. I I know a lot of people took him up on it, and they were thinking it was going to be people in their forties and fifties, twenties and thirties. Yeah, primarily. Yeah, there's a cultural uh, shift that happened. I bet. I bet. To go back to that question, like I bet you ninety nine percent of our audience would take would would a hundred percent say. I mean, like ninety percent of them would say in a heartbeat, yes, I would take that that ten percent drop for for an extra day. Maybe not ninety percent. A lot of them, you know. Well, you, you have a whole audience of people who are running organizations of various sizes, right? Yeah. Like, go run that experiment. Think like a scientist and say, all right, what's, yeah. what's the worst that will happen? Uh, people are going to they're gonna find that it didn't work for them or it didn't work for you. And then you'll say, all right, we learned something. Good stuff, man. What I love about this is it forces people to rethink if you should measure your productivity in hours spent at work or tasks that were completed or progress that was made because you made a great point, Adam. I think the majority of people can get more work done in four focus days than five days where they're just punching a clock and saying, well, I'm here, I'm at work. So that's all that matters. So true. I mean, the, anybody who thinks that we could measure your performance or your productivity in terms of time, I'm like, no, it's supposed to be the value that you create. That's exactly right. And that's something I think that as the world is adjusting, the people that are catching up to that and, and getting ahead of it quicker. The entrepreneurs that are recognizing that they can get more done if they focus on it are the ones who are thriving. And really, if you think about where that concept came from, it was the industrial revolution. I need you to stand here at an assembly line for this long and eight hours because I can put that into a 24-hour period of time very evenly. 
stay here and, and put a widget together. And we're still sort of operating under that mindset now. And I think, Brandon, that's probably what you were getting at when you were saying rethink the career. It's the this is the lane that you have to stay in to do this thing as opposed to sort of st- stepping back and seeing the big picture. And Adam, also, I just want to highlight that was a remarkably fast process that you just took Brandon's uh, suggestion practically applied it to how it would work in your life like everybody listening if we could all think as fast as adam we'd be doing a lot better (laughs) i'll just be happy if people rethink a little faster all right well thank you man this has been fantastic really really good show thank you enjoyed it this is david green for brandon text but don't call turner signing off you're listening to bigger pockets radio simplifying real estate for investors large and small If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. Braving the real estate investing journey on your own can be daunting. Doubts tend to creep up and stifle your ambition. Is this actually a good deal? Did you run the numbers right? What if you can't find a tenant? Can you even afford this place? What if you lose your job? Whatever you're going through, we've all been there. And guess what? The best way to overcome your doubts and hesitations is with a healthy dose of knowledge, networking, and accountability. And that's just what you'll find in our newly released 2024 Summer Boot Camps. After these eight action-packed weeks of step-by-step guidance from expert investors, weekly video modules, live Q&As, interactive assignments, and new friends to keep you accountable, you'll be ready to tackle your first or next deal with full confidence and expertise. Choose from the small multifamily, short-term rental, or rookie boot camps and register by April 12th for the lowest prices. Head on over to biggerpockets.com slash enroll me today. That's biggerpockets.com slash enroll me. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.